Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. If you listen to this podcast, chances are you are already aware that the world is in the midst of its worst refugee and displacement crisis since World War II. There are millions of refugees and migrants on the move, and countless papers and books and articles about refugees and migrants have been published over the last several months and years. But there has been fairly little attention paid to one key group that facilitates the movement of migrants, and that is the smugglers themselves. In a brand new book published by Oxford University Press, authors Peter Tinty and Tuesday Raytano offer an in-depth look at the individuals who make the movement of migrants possible. The book Migrant Refugee Smuggler Savior examines the people who profit from this global phenomenon. And as the title of the book suggests, these people smugglers are not all exploitative human rights violators. Rather, they are making a buck or sometimes tens of thousands by providing a service for for people in need. Co-author Peter Tinty, who I'm proud to say is a listener of this very podcast, is on the line with me to discuss their book. And in this conversation, Peter offers some insights into the individual smugglers, how they operate, and what motivates them. And also how this multi-billion dollar industry is profoundly shaping the political economies of several cities along migrant routes. It's fascinating stuff. Have a listen. But before you do, take the step to become a premium subscriber to the podcast. You can unlock bonus episodes, get a complimentary subscription to my email news clip service, get some Global Dispatches swag, and unlock other offers like a 75% discount on career coaching services. You can find out more about these bonuses and become a premium member by clicking on the link in the description field of this podcast or by visiting globaldispatchespodcast.com. And I hope you do. And now here is Peter Tinty. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. That's the billion dollar, multi-billion dollar question, I should say, um, regarding who exactly are these smugglers. There's been a lot of emphasis uh, during what's come to be called the migration crisis on who is putting these people onto boats and who's helping them traverse the Sahara. The answer is incredibly complex, and that's why I saw fit to, to write a book about it with my, my colleague, Tuesday Retano. Um, at the most basic level, a, a smuggler is really anyone who helps um, someone overcome a, a barrier, whether it's political, physical, natural, or even cultural, in order to uh, enter into another country uh, irregularly, or uh, some people prefer the term illegally, but to help someone enter into a country through uh, outside of the normal channels like and mechanisms. Without a visa. Without a visa, exactly. Um, and 
you know, the, I think the thing that people really need to understand about smugglers is smugglers exist because there is demand for smuggler services. So smugglers are the supply to someone else's demand and demand to enter countries irregularly or illegally or without a visa is um, reaching unprecedented levels in part because uh, global displacement is reaching all time highs. Uh, conflict is displacing people um, at unprecedented levels. Um, famine, climate change, uh, political instability, uh, but also just aspirations to migrate to more economically viable parts of the world. Uh, people want to move from places that where they don't see themselves as able to carve out a livelihood for themselves, and they're trying to move to places where they think they can. Um, so to, to kind of really drill down into, I know that's a circuitous way to get to the answer of who's a smuggler. Well, it's, it's um, also probably worth, worth pointing out that there's a distinction that researchers make, that you make, but sometimes politicians and others do not make between people smuggling and human trafficking, right? One is right. far more exploitative than the other, whereas the you know people smuggling is a mutually agreed upon adventure, whereas human trafficking is uh, you know essentially like a, a form of slavery. Exactly, and that is an absolutely crucial distinction. Uh, the first, as you said, migrant smuggling is usually a more um, consensual agreement that two parties have reached. One is a service provider; the other is the, the the migrant. In this case, is the one who is seeking the services of the smuggler. Um, and there's actually a difference in international law. So both migrant smuggling and human trafficking are both very clearly defined in the um, United Nations Convention, uh, Transnational Organized Crime Convention. And so those, those crimes are actually quite different and should be uh, prosecuted differently. And, um, you know, much of the international community has ratified these conventions. So there is a common framework with which people should understand smuggling and trafficking. But the the line between smuggling and trafficking can actually blur quite a bit. Um, and oftentimes what can start off as a willing buyer, willing seller relationship can turn quite exploitative. And sometimes people who think they're being smuggled are actually being trafficked. Um, sometimes people who have hired a smuggler to help them reach safety or their end destination um, find themselves being abused or extorted during the journey. And then actually once a ransom is paid or certain conditions have been met, the relationship goes back to one of a service provider. So the, the, it can be very murky. And I think we also need to be careful because sometimes people conflate the terms. Uh, it's, when they're conflating the terms, it's a very innocent mistake. They just don't necessarily know the difference between smuggling or trafficking. And the way the words can get translated in different languages can, can blur but other times people are calling smuggling trafficking um, because they have an agenda. Mm -hmm. And I think like both are illegal, but trafficking is like morally more abhorrent than smuggling. You could say exactly. And that's, and, and some commentators uh, are quite aware of this. And so if they can justify say a border closure or working with a repressive government or turning people away and call that anti-trafficking uh, they're, much more likely to be able to leverage kind of moral outrage and and resources towards it than if what they're calling is anti-smuggling, 
which in a lot of ways could mean turning away refugees. So your your book is is really one of the first book-length studies that takes a look at who these smugglers are. So can you tell me uh, some stories about the people you met, the smugglers you met, like what um, motivated them, what like how they got into this now booming business? Sure. Well, smugglers cover a wide spectrum of people who are maybe low-level entrepreneurs, criminal entrepreneurs, someone who had really never really engaged in any sort of criminal activity and saw a chance to, to make a little bit of money helping people cross the border, uh, to very hardened and um, experienced criminals who are involved in, you know, organized crime and mafia style networks. So, so give really, me, yeah, give me an example of, of, of people you met. So who, who would be like a low level entrepreneur that, that uh, sort of somehow stumbled into this business? Sure. So in the example um, that and one of the earliest examples in the book and in many ways where this story starts is, is Agadez Niger, which is a, a smuggling hub in the middle of the Sahara Desert where people have been smuggling um, just about anything for a long time as part of the way this uh, it's the economic basis of, of northern Niger in a lot of ways. People are moving everything from fuel to foodstuffs to arms uh, from across borders uh, to make a buck. And the smugglers I met there um, were mostly young kids. Uh, well, I, I say kids, but I should say people, you know, aged between 18, some as young as 16 to, to 30, uh, many of whom uh, had previously lived in Libya. Niger is just south of Libya and had carved out a life for themselves in, in, in Gaddafi's Libya, but then with the collapse of, of Libya, had to move elsewhere uh, for all sorts of political and economic reasons. Um, but many of them, their skill set, what they had always done, was uh, the transportation of goods. Um, now, oftentimes, this was the transportation of goods to bypass official checkpoints and visa, visa regimes and borders, but also they, they were um, legitimate businessmen as well. They're transporters. But what, what happened in Agadez is Agadez became one of the key launching points for almost every West African migrant who was passing through Libya en route to, to Europe. And so with literally thousands of people uh, at, at its height, thousands of people arriving in this tiny city in the middle of the desert every day, we had this situation in which people who had previously tried to carve out a living, you know, moving goods here and there, just decided to to give up moving anything other than people. That's where the money was to be made. And so they're really just um, young men who who saw an opportunity to to either work as a driver um, and and using a truck that someone else owned, or to actually make some of their own investments and purchase their own uh, you know four by four Helix pickup truck and start packing migrants into the back and, and driving them into southern Libya. So that's that's the hub from Western uh, Africa. I mean, I'm looking at a map right now, and Agadez is, is marked on it, and it's just like dead in the center of Niger. And so you right. can imagine just geographically, it makes the most sense if you're coming from like Gambia or Nigeria to go through Agadez on the way to Libya to get to, to, um, to Europe. Right. And it's not a coincidence that it happened in Agadez because – most West African citizens are part of ECOWAS, which is an economic and political bloc, and they can travel throughout the region without a visa. Um, ECOWAS has free freedom, freedom of movement for those who are members of, of 
uh, th so those who are citizens of member states. And that's something they, the ECOWAS really values. But it's when you get to Agadez, um, you're kind of, you've kind of reached the last stop. So Agadez is more or less where you know, sub-Saharan Africa ends and, and, and the Sahara begins. And so for many people, that's the first time they need a smuggler, sir, the services of a smuggler. You can get all the way to Agadez just by taking public transport. But once you get to Agadez, if you want to get to into southern Libya, you're probably going to need a smuggler, um, not only because you might need to bypass a visa regime and, and get in irregularly, but also because you need someone who can actually navigate that terrain. And so... Um, the name of one of the smugglers I, I talked to at length, Ibrahim, who was based in Agadez, um, his, he already had this unique skill set that allowed him to plug into this smuggling economy. And that was that he was capable of driving in the desert and knew how to do it with skill and without getting lost and, and, and to survive. And so he was, he, he was a driver and he would ferry people to the Libyan coast? Uh, not all the way to the Libyan coast. He would go uh, as far north as uh, usually um, a town called Seba, which is in southern Libya. And uh, one thing that I think people really need to understand when we're talking about the, the smuggling industry, the global smuggling industry, is that um, it's heavily shaped by the political economy and it's also shaping the political economy. So Ibrahim is a he's an ethnic Tubu, and that's a tribe that lives in northern Niger, southern Libya, and parts of Chad. And the the networks, uh, the routes along which he operates, are ones that have now more or less been consolidated by uh, the ethnic Tubu and are controlled by, and to, to some extent, uh, Tubu militia. So he can go as far as Sebha, but once he gets to Sebha, he actually has to uh, pass on the migrants to a new network of of Trafficker, or sorry, smugglers, a new network of smugglers who are then capable of moving people through terrain that he can't go through. And those would be largely ethnic Arab, um, uh, various Arab tribesmen uh, in Seba who then pick up the smugglers, he, the, the migrants he drops off. So how much would like a Gambian person pay Ibrahim for that trip uh, through Niger and southern Libya? Yeah, so for that leg alone, depending on the time of year and the exact logistics, um, and the prices have fluctuated a little bit over the years, but in generally on the on the lowest end, you could um, reasonably expect to get there for one hundred and fifty dollars, and for the for the on the high end, you know, three hundred to to five hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. um, and normally, Ibrahim would be putting anywhere from twenty to thirty people in the back of a pickup truck. Okay, and so so Ibrahim he um, passes his passengers to uh, a smuggling group in in Libya, and and, and who are they? Like I, I suppose um, they're they're obviously multi. You know, Libya is one of the big um, origin countries in terms of the last stop before people from all over Africa and the Middle East go to Europe. What right. kind of groups are are operating? Like, who did you meet in in Libya, and what do their experiences tell us about how smuggling? operates more generally? Sure. Well, the, the smuggling market in Libya is actually quite complex because some of the migrants who are actually going to Libya and who end up uh, going on to Europe didn't actually come to Libya with the intention of going to Europe. Uh, Libya is still a place that's perceived by many uh, sub-Saharan African migrants as a place where they can find employment. And so 
many come to Libya just for work opportunities. And so getting to Sebha in the first place and southern Libya in the first place is the it was the destination. And uh, after maybe weeks or months or even years of realizing or finding out that maybe uh, there, there aren't the employment opportunities that they seek, some migrants will then decide to make the further investment of getting to Europe. And um, some will be able to get to, to, to the, the Libyan coast for boats on their own using uh, various forms of transport, but other will right then and there in places like Sepa seek the services of a, a smuggler who has either um, told them they can arrange for the entire passage from there to Europe or said that they can get them to the coast and then introduce them to the next uh, person in the chain. So we see different types of networks, uh, some that are very much operating on this uh, pay-as-you-go model where people pay for each step in the journey and then they might um, stop for a little while, try to find employment to finance the next step or send uh, or have people from, from back home send money to finance the next step. Or they might be paying for what's more like a, a full package scheme. And that's oftentimes putting down several thousand dollars in advance to say, uh, I'm giving you this money and it is your job now to, to transport me all the way to the coast and then to arrange for me to get on one of the boats that's heading towards Europe. So, I mean, I, I have to imagine uh, that because there's so much money involved, there's such a demand that, you know, lives of, of thousands of smugglers and their families and the cities that they live in have arguably been really profoundly transformed by this like thriving industry. I mean, you said earlier that um, the, the smuggling is, is at once shaped by the political economy, but also shapes the political economy of the places in which it operates. So what are like some stories, some examples of how, you know, cities or towns or families even have, have been transformed by this vibrant and booming business? Uh, sure. Well, I can think of two pretty concrete examples. One is Agadez again, and then I'll, I'll give another example so that we're not on, on Niger the whole time, but Agadez, um, as I said before, is a city that has, has long thrived on being a crossroads in the Sahara. And um, it's fallen on some, some pretty hard economic times. But with the, with the boom in migrant smuggling, uh, even local government officials have, have conceded that actually this has been really good for our economy um, and has, have even said to journalists and made public statements, you know, what incentive do we have to, to stop this? Uh, I believe one of the quotes, uh, one of the um, government officials gave to, I, I believe the New York Times, but it might have been the Wall Street Journal, was everybody is eating off of this, even the police. And that just goes to show that um, for, for places that are transit hubs like Agadez, there really isn't a huge incentive to, to crack down on migrant smuggling as much, at, even, even as um, the European Union, for example, is, is really encouraging them to do so and trying to provide all of these sort of inducements to, to get them to. And on the ground, what this looks like is it, it means um, I mean, shops and markets are flourishing. It means uh, AT ATMs at banks are, are actually working because migrants need to take out money before they, they're making their payment, which uh, having been to Agadez before the boom and then uh, also during the boom, I can tell you that that is, a, that is actually quite a development to see tons of ATMs actually uh, dispensing money. Um, various um, sorts of uh, money lenders and hawala dealers and and money changers uh, sprouting up and, and uh, improving their services. Um, 
a construction boom predicated on people investing in uh, one the, the proceeds that they're making from migrant smuggling, but also deciding uh, that maybe this is something worth investing in so that you have a place where you can house migrants or charge migrants to stay as they are planning their journeys. So this really touches uh, more than just the migrant smugglers themselves. It, it's everything. Even, it's it's, it's everything. like the, the, the entire economy of, of the city. So what, what was the, the, the other um, example you were discussing? Yeah, well, the other example I, I can think of is, is Izmir, which is in Turkey, and mm-hmm. that's a that was a key hub for, uh, especially in 2015, when we saw uh, you know over a million people cross that the Turkey take boats from Turkey to Greece, and that uh, you know 2015 is is I'm sure you'll you remember was was really when the migrant uh, crisis um, became a global story that was really. Uh, driving the you know the news the news narrative for for that entire summer, uh, in part because we were seeing thousands of people every day arrive in Greece from from Turkey and Izmir is a is a is a fairly large city on the Turkish coast that was very much a hub where people would arrive, uh, mostly Syrians but also Iraqis, Pakistanis, Afghans, in order to uh, find smugglers who could take them to Greece and. The migrant smuggling industry was so out in the open at that time that you could actually just physically see how it was changing the way the city functioned. One example, uh, there's a strip, uh, a main drag in town that had many clothing stores that, you know, offered uh, various types of jeans and blazers and and designer labels. And their advertising had all of that on on their storefronts. But then when you actually entered the store, uh, you could see that all of the clothing shops had actually moved all of their inventory into the basement. And the only thing they were selling, um, they were only selling life jackets. They had decided that life jackets was the, was where the money's at. Um, and so you had store after store just selling life jackets and they were full of Syrians, Afghans, Bangladeshis, Pakistanis, um, you know, haggling for and, and, and bargaining, bargaining and negotiating over the price of, of, of life jackets. And I can tell you as a, as a journalist who was covering it, um, you know, I, I, I'm not often confused for a, a Syrian or, or a, a someone of, of Middle Eastern origin, but, um, I was regularly approached the entire time I was in Syria by would be smugglers or interlocutors or, or recruiters for, for smuggling networks because, uh, it, it was assumed that if you were someone there in kind of jeans and a t-shirt and a, and a backpack, uh, that you were a migrant looking to move on. Uh, so, it, it was- so, so, so how did the smuggler network, the individual smugglers even sort of differ from, uh, smugglers along the African route to, to Libya? Was, were there any sort of fundamental differences? Uh, fu- fundamental differences between between the smugglers at work in Izmir and in Turkey uh, and those, um, you know, in, in the African route through through Niger and Libya. Yeah, there were there were some some differences, and I think one of the key things we saw, especially on the the um, route from Turkey into Greece, is the levels of innovation that we were seeing, um, in part because that route was primarily used by Syrians. And this is something we haven't really seen before, in which we have a community like the Syrians who are moving in such large numbers, who uh, were comparatively wealthier. Mm-hmm. and like uh, Middle and, income people, like mid- middle class people that are trying exactly, to move, and, to very and, poor people trying to move. Yeah, Exactly. And who also had access to a diaspora that was um, capable of, of 
uh, pooling and pooling resources and leveraging resources in a way that some of the other communities we're talking about don't. And so Syrians were really actually demanding a modicum of customer service from smugglers. And because there was so much money to be made in moving Syrians, smugglers wanted to move Syrians. So they have to compete with each other. They have to, they have to provide a service, otherwise Syrians are going to um, go elsewhere. And so what we saw, uh, in fact, was um, smugglers uh, relying on referrals, but also smugglers offering various types of financing schemes. And in Izmir, one of the things I witnessed was the, the emergence of, of what were more or less migrant escrow accounts. And that was when, if, if you're a Syrian and you find your smuggler and you've agreed to the price, um, rather than previously, sometimes people had paid half up front, half on arrival in order to make sure that they weren't getting completely screwed over by the smuggler. But um, that didn't really work in, in the context of Turkey to Greece because the boats that people were taking, the smugglers weren't really on them. And there, there was not necessarily anyone who worked for the smuggling network on the other side. And so they had to come up with a scheme that allowed for migrants to pay, but my, migrants also to, um, to, to have assurances that, that the smuggler would provide the service. So what would happen is you again, would reach your arrangement with the smuggler, and then you'd be taken actually to a third party. And this person would specialize in, in holding the money. And so you, you pay that person the money, and then this person gives you a receipt, and you now have an agreement with your smuggler that once you make it, you will, you will either text the number or take a photo of the receipt. Or in some cases, I met uh, Syrians who had, upon arriving in Greece, had pieces of paper with actual barcodes or even QR codes for their smartphone, mm -hmm. and they would take that picture, and that notifies the third-party guarantor to release the money to the smuggler. Um, so we're talking about some actually pretty sophisticated schemes emerging um, that that really shows that this is an economy in which there's so much money involved, and that that innovation is obviously going to take place. Do among the, the 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 people the smugglers that you interviewed and, and presumably the um the 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 people that they smuggled I mean the you know the, the last word of your title is is savior mm -hmm. um under what circumstances did you have people tell you that the person who smuggled them is their actual their their savior Well it, that was a term that was used in Greece um, among Syrians that I that I interviewed, and the the issue here was that um, for those who and I've been using the term migrant as a catch-all here, uh, you know, a broad the, the broader term above refugee, right? And so not everyone who's moving technically would qualify as a refugee or be eligible for refugee status, but for the Syrians who were moving. Um, Almost all of them, I think, by, by most broad definitions of, of how you want to define who is eligible for asylum, um, Syrians are, are fleeing a terrible war, an intractable war in which there doesn't seem to be an end in sight. And for them, they had been failed by the international system. Many of the people who were moving um, have been trapped in refugee camps or living in the shadows uh, in either Lebanon or Turkey with really no prospect, zero prospects for carving out a decent life for themselves or their children. And many have been displaced for years at this point. And so the only way to reach um, Europe safely and to apply for asylum because our asylum system is so broken uh, is to pay someone to illegally get you to safety, to get you to where you want to go. And so 
many of these people had um, entirely positive experiences with their smugglers. Now, that doesn't necessarily, now, that's not all the smugglers, and there's tons of people out there who are um, doing nothing more than exploiting people. And let's be clear, these smugglers are profiting off of the desperation of these Syrians, but they are providing a service. And if you're a Syrian who has been stuck um, either in Syria or outside of Syria with almost no prospects for you or your family, um, you're likely to have a, actually a quite positive um, positive view of the people who have managed to facilitate you getting to, to your new life abroad. Um, and, and one of the most kind of extreme examples was um, people who paid for... Uh, uh, so, someone we interviewed who paid for a, a bespoke package, a, a really complex smuggling package, which wasn't a series of overland and sea routes, but someone who's able to procure fake documents, um, plane tickets, and literally just fly this person through formal channels into Europe. And when that person landed, um, they were so grateful to the person who was able to facilitate this. Uh, this person was immediately granted asylum upon landing. So it's not a question of whether or not this was a worthwhile investment. Uh, they needed someone who could deliver them from this terrible situation. And this smuggler was the person who provided that. Um, so on on Turkey, you know, we, we were talking, you were talking earlier about how Izmir, the, 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 the coastal city uh, from which many uh, migrants and, and refugees from Syria went to, to Greece, was like a, a booming, you know, transport smuggling hub. But then, of course, uh, there was this big deal between Europe and Turkey in which in exchange for uh, a big financial package of incentives, Turkey began to crack down on uh, those smuggler networks that, that you uh, had investigated. So after that crackdown, like how did the, the smugglers uh, adapt? How did like the pricing schemes change as well? Yeah, well, the smuggling network or the smuggling market, uh, like any other market, is, is defined by supply and demand. And so <clears throat> what we've seen uh, everywhere where borders have come up or policies have changed to make um, movement more difficult, including in Turkey, is that as the prices, as as barriers go up and um, movement is made more difficult, the, the prices um, rise. And so initially after the, the Tur EU-Turkey deal, there was actually a, well, when it was first announced, there was a real rush and people were determined to get to Greece before that, um, that route was more or less closed down. Um, so we see two things. One, prices tend to increase when borders are increased, but also the types of actors that are involved change. Um, when the borders are relatively porous, uh, then the people who can become smugglers or engage in migrant smuggling uh, require less expertise. And it's often these sort of criminal entrepreneurs, people who see a chance to make a buck, um, who get involved. But when the borders are increased and uh, sorry, barriers are increased and it becomes much more difficult to facilitate moving people across the border as it has now getting people from from Turkey to Greece. The, the low level criminal entrepreneurs actually get pushed out of the market and the people who stay involved are the ones who actually have the criminal expertise to buy off local authorities, to, to move people who've previously been moving um, organized crime networks, for lack of a better way to put it, you know, the, the, the Turkish mafia, people who've been moving guns, heroin, people, uh, trafficking people, they're now the only ones who are really capable of providing these services. And so um, 
there's been some recent reporting by other outlets about what smugglers who have been pushed out of the market are now doing. And, and they've had to make their own kind of life adjustments. But the actual hardened criminals who have the skills, uh, they're still involved. And then one has to wonder then what is the, um, is this a trade-off that's worth having? If, if, if in some cases migrants are still arriving, not in the numbers they were before, but there are still migrants arriving in Greece and they're having to take more dangerous routes, they're having to pay more money, and that money is going into the hands of, of some actual pretty nasty groups. Um, the, the, you know, that, that, those are negative policy outcomes that I'm not sure we should always be happy as a trade-off to st stemming migrant flows. And uh, from my perspective, it, it's also worth asking, I mean, it, um, it, why, do, why are we so interested in stopping refugees from, from reaching Greece? Uh, many of the people who can no longer make the journey are, are, actual, are people who are undoubtedly asylum seekers. Sure, there's economic migrants amongst them, but many of them are, are people who very much would qualify for asylum and, and really don't have any other options. Um, and just one other point I'd like to make about that is you, you mentioning the, the migrant deal. Um, the EU has more or less decided to, to pay Turkey. Uh, um, it was initially a 3 billion euro deal and then it became a 6 billion euro deal to um, close down that border for them. And what I fear we have is a, a real risk of allowing uh, asylum seekers to become uh, instrumentalized and politicized in a way that's going to affect the way um, international relations operates. And we've already seen some other countries that host large um, migrant popula refugee populations like Kenya or other transit countries like Sudan and even uh, countries like Niger, which is a transit country, have, have saw that price tag and suddenly started coming to Europe and saying, well, this is how much it would cost for us to do something similar. Um, and the question remains, so the, the, the flows from Turkey to Greece have been reduced for now, but what happens uh, if the Turkish government no longer sees, uh, believes that 6 billion, 6 billion euro is enough to, to be Europe's ostensible border guard? Um, you know, we, we really risk refugees becoming a, a, a pawn and, and a bargaining chip that countries use when they're negotiating with Europe. Uh, well, Peter, thank you so much. This is fascinating. Thank you, Mark. All right. Thank you to Peter and Tuesday for their book. And thank you all for listening. Got some great shows on the horizon, so stay tuned. But before then, do become a premium subscriber. I really do need your support. We're at the tail end of a fundraising drive. It did not hit the targets I was hoping for which means more time and effort has to be expended on my part, chasing down advertisers and funders, as opposed to putting together great episodes. It's just kind of a bummer. I hate wrangling for cash. I would much, much rather spend my time preparing for interviews and bringing you these interviews week in, week out. And if these interviews week in, week out are something that you look forward to, that are part of your routine, please do become a premium subscribers. We have lots of bonuses already available, and I promise to roll out more in the coming weeks. So thank you.